This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork, London. I'm Sarah Kashansky, analyst at Business Insider Intelligence and regular guest on InsureTech's sister podcast, FinTech Insider. And once again, they've let me host this show. This week's show will focus on the sharing and gig economies and changing insurance models. But before we get to that, I'm joined by some fantastic guests who I'm going to let introduce themselves. Nigel, do you want to kick us off? Hey guys, Nigel Walsh, partner with Deloitte and co-host of the show. Uh, Richard Lawton, I'm CEO of Easy Car, which runs a peer-to-peer car rental network and also chair of Sharing Economy UK, which is a trade body for the industry. I'm Rob Moffat. I'm a partner at Borderson Capital, uh, the leading uh, early stage uh, VC focused on early stage uh, and on the board of two sharing economy uh, insurance companies. I'm Santana Kenbrakam Roy. I'm the CEO and founder of Tapley Insurance on Tap, and we offer on-demand insurance for freelancers, contractor, and SME. Brilliant. Well, thank you all for joining us. Let's get straight into it. So, Nigel, start us off. For any of our listeners who are unclear, how are we going to define the sharing economy today? Blimey. So in my research, and I started looking around, and the first place we start, of course, is Google. I tried to find a, a definition that made sense to me of what the sharing economy was. And I got a whole load of nonsense back. It's really interesting. Go in a rabbit hole. I, I really got stuck <laughs> quite quickly. And I went back to the, what would my mum think if I said to her, what's the sharing economy? Or what, what, what would it mean to people? So we've all heard of the Ubers, the Airbnbs, and all that sort of stuff. We're actually we're sharing other things that people potentially own. The actual definition I found, I'll read it out really, really quickly. It said, the sharing economy is a socio-economic ecosystem built around the sharing of human, physical and intellectual resources. Hmm. That sounded quite interesting, right? I thought, okay, I kind of get that, but it's not really selling it to me. It includes the shared creation, production, distribution, trade and consumptions of goods and services by different people and organisations. What a mouthful. So I'll put it back into English. It is basically, in my mind, the sharing economy and the gig economy I, I would say go hand in hand, and no doubt we're going to argue that as we go forward uh, through, through the discussion. Um, but in essence, it's 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 renting something or using something that that belongs to other people. Go back to the very old quote from John Paul Getty: "If it appreciates, buy it. If it depreciates, rent it." So we've talked about leasing cars for years, or hiring the journey, or all those sorts of good, good things. Um, that, for me, is what the sharing economy has been put, being put around. And as a result, we've seen the birth of some great big organisations like Airbnb, uh, like Uber, where you can actually rent out your asset and have it make money for you when you're not using it yourself. So I think it's a great opportunity, number one. And number two, it gives a huge issue and challenge to insurance organisations, which is why I think it's really exciting. Wonderful. Okay, so at that point, let's bring our guests in and get into the roundtable. Um, so the first sort of point that I think we need to we need to clarify here is what's the difference um, between those working in these new sharing economy type companies and those who are freelancers? So freelancers have existed for a long time, and insurance products for freelancers have existed for a long time. So what's the difference here? Is this is this new people entering a type of workforce? Is this new products? I, I think one of the um, one of the key 
differentiation points is that the sharing economy is really about bringing people together through connected markets. So freelancers have existed for a long time and you could hire those through agencies or through classified ads or other or other means of, of getting hold of people. What sharing economy companies do is bring together lots of information about availability of something, whether that's people or cars or houses in one place. And that means that you get a much more vibrant marketplace, much more dynamic marketplace. And so people get more opportunities. And so we're seeing that there are you know, plenty of people who previously would have been taxi drivers, you know, minicab drivers applying for the job, knowing the guy who does the dispatching, instead signing up online to Uber and similar businesses. Uh, and they're able to pick up some work relatively quickly, obviously, once they've gone through all the appropriate checks. So it's the way that people are working is becoming disrupted, sort of the, the way in which they're working, interacting with other companies. It's, if we're thinking about the gig economy in particular, it's certainly the way that people are working and the way that companies are accessing labour. And choosing to work as well, right? Because I often people, I know people now that choose to work those flexible hours and go, actually, and I'm using the examples, but it might not be the case. It might be a delivery driver in the evening, an Uber driver during the day, and then doing um, loss adjusting with we go look in the afternoon. Absolutely. And I think the fact that people can choose all of these different ways of working is really interesting. If you look at, so Matthew Taylor did a report for the government on uh, on the gig economy. The CIPD has also looked at this sector as well, because there, obviously there's been quite a lot of negative negative news about the gig economy in particular in the last year. Um, but they found that people really value the flexibility. Anecdotally, you'll find that if you talk to, to drivers um, in, your, in next time you take an Uber, that they like the fact they can start at 6.45 rather than 6.30 if they were you know, late having dinner with their kids. I mean, the difference for a black cab is you've had to pay for the license, you've had to pay for the cab, you've had to pay to do the knowledge. And I think a lot of the gig economy companies allow people to dip in, dip out. You can rent your car. You can get your insurance on a permanent so basis. So reducing the barriers to yeah. get there in the first yeah. place. Yeah, and you can do, as you said, you can work three different jobs um, for three weeks, then take a month off and then come back again. Um, I say oversimplification, right? A lot of people are doing this because they need the money, um, but some people are doing it for the flexibility. So, so if we're talking about, you know, challenges that throws up for, you know, either employers or in the insurance industry, I mean, that's one that you've you've just, you know, checked off there is, well, somebody's doing three different jobs at three different times with presumably three different sets of risk, but you can't, they, they are not going to want to pay for three different sets of personal liability insurance or, you know, how, you know, where, where do we even start on picking this? Well, I think people are increasingly providing insurance in bite-sized chunks for the exact time that you need it for, for the type of things that you're doing. Yeah, that's exact, um, exactly why we uh, created Tapley is to offer a lifestyle choice for freelancers because we know that they um, they take commercial risk and usually several type of risk at the same time. So we need to be able to cover them all type of risk while they are working and also outside work. Um, so there's a bit of um, a hybrid between you know individual um, that taking commercial risk and that's exactly what uh, the Shang economy brings and also the gig economy kind of offer people or individual ability to act like a business but in a traditional insurance model you classify people either as a business or individual so you either can get private um, insurance or commercial insurance but with the Shang economy and the gig economy people need something in between so tapley offer that in-between uh, policies so that people can be covered regardless of what they do. Let me pick a really simple one. And I, like, I mean, Metromar, most people have heard of, Dan Preston, the team uh, out in the States. I, I really like this. This, for me, 
shows the ability for technology to enable this new economy, which I think is which is why I think it gets really exciting. So when you've got a passenger on board, you flip to a commercial policy. When the passenger comes comes out and leaves the car, you're back to a personal policy. And that for me, that ability to flip on and off almost automatically is quite neat. I think they turned it off actually recently, but that sort of thing that allows you to um, <laughs> flip on and flip off actually is technology enabled number one but number two tells you you can back to your point about buying insurance in bite-sized chunks that's relevant to the thing that you're doing at the time so if you've got a passenger on board you need commercial cover if you don't you go back into your personal lines cover and I mean, and, and presumably that um, raises questions as well, though, if you're if you're if you are a delivery driver or an Uber driver uh, or, you know, an Airbnb host and you're going between personal insurance and company insurance. How does this fit in with the idea that you're employed by somebody else if you're a delivery or, or employed or not employed by somebody else? Because presumably the model here, you know, we're talking about diverging models. Yeah, it's great for the individual who can buy insurance in bite sized chunks. But what about those people who are used to being insured by their employer? So, you know, most employers will have insurance to in case anything happens on their premises for their employees. How, how does that fit in? Yeah, no, this, is, this is definitely a sensitive topic right now because Uber is, and other companies are at pains to not be perceived as employers. And providing insurance to their drivers is, is something that would definitely take them a step further towards that. Uh, and that's the reason uh, behind Zego, uh, which we invested in last year, which uh, offers uh, insurance for delivery drivers, Uber Eats drivers, whether it's scooter or car or bike. Um, this ability to have a third party providing the insurance, uh, but that the platform knows that there is a third party available. Uh, and so, that so does can, Uber offer that to their Uber drivers? does not offer it themselves, okay. but they can help people sort of find where they might find They can make people insurance. aware of it in the yeah, same exactly. way they make people yes. aware of pension plans. Exactly. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, pension plans is really interesting because that, that, now we get back into another loop back into insurance because I go back to a report back in December last year where they said um, gig economy workers will risk missing out on £22,000 of pension contributions. Obviously, if you're self-employed versus um, requiring to go into the you know the minimum payments you, you would have if you were an employee, it's a very different thing. So actually, there's a if the economy shifts from all employees to all self-employed, what does that do to the pension require or your, your pension ability and your ability to save for long-term um, retirement? So there's a, there was a report back in December last year that said actually most most gig economy workers are missing out on some some massive opportunity here. Yeah, and, and I think there are some platforms being developed at the moment and rolled out with the support of companies like Deliver and Uber, which offer individual to providing labor through those platforms the opportunity to set aside some cash for savings um, and and i think over time those will develop into uh, into ways in which individuals can choose more effectively between the platforms that are offering work because i'll be able to see which ones are, which ones are offering better benefits yes one of my company that i invested about just under three years ago doing just that so is uh, a digital hr solution platform that offer um, basically an umbrella structure for all employers and employee. So uh, they offer pensions and they're looking after insurance and invoicing facilities and also uh, work matching. So you can match a company with a uh, employee that is um, under that platform. So that's exactly one of the company that I'm invested in. So it actually becomes kind of a, a modular structure. Yeah. So you pick the modules that suit you. I want a pension plan and I want that insurance and, you know, whatever else you might need. I mean, Deloitte does it. I mean, for example, we've got a proposition called Propel that does these things for accounting services for small enterprises or individuals, which gives you everything wrapped up. And I think that SME or individual propositions is really interesting. Well, you know, wherever you're going to get it, um, you need 
help from people like legal help is that law by is it uh, hr help that, that Giancarlo talked about is it insurance help from tapley or from dinghy or whoever else is it the finance help where where's that ecosystem around me that i can pull together back to the original quote so there's me taking the mickey out of it. actually it's not bad the ecosystem piece there bringing it all together makes life quite interesting so what we've, we've mentioned some great you know startups here we've mentioned some great ideas some you know tech enabled products and platforms what does this mean for the big guys like what does this mean for your for you know those big names that everybody everybody knows and loves the big insurers yes the big yeah. insurers yeah yeah i think that that's they're certainly trying to adapt to it right and i think you're seeing some of the big brokers some of the big insurers trying to adapt to this uh the question for them is how can they make it happen economically right you're charging someone 35p uh an hour for insurance how can you fit that into a traditional software house structure uh, and still make any sort of profit on it? So for them, as far as, as, far as you're concerned, it's almost a technical challenge. It's a technical and cost challenge, right? And I think that's why we get excited as, as a VC here is that there's opportunity for the, the lean technology-driven companies to have a real edge. But there's, there's two angles. There's always the employer angle, the big insurance carries, and then the employee angle. So if you break it down into two, as a provider of capacity into the market – more often than not, to your point, if you're going to buy insurance for an hour, like you would with a, a trove or whatever else, or a cover, when Freddie's been on the show quite a few times, um, if you're buying cover just for for the hour or whatever it might be, more often than not, it will cost an insurer more to put that stuff through the overall processing, get the paperwork done, printed and sent or emailed, than it would in terms of revenue return for it. Exactly. So it's, it's yeah. an inefficient and, mechanism is, today. Is that true for every transaction or the first transaction that someone undertakes on that platform? Because I think you know there is clearly a setup cost, and if you're going to amortise that setup cost over an annual policy, or if you know as an insurer, typical insurer now and motor, for instance, you're hoping that's going to be amortised over five years. Obviously, you're not going to compete on cost if you're if you're just looking at the setup cost. But once people get used to using those platforms, then I think you'll find that there's sort really of the, the piece yeah. the piece rate becomes if people, if people stay and becomes. if people are loyal. Uh, neither of those are true. So. That's what that's true. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Enterprise comparison sites for on-demand insurance, yeah. and all of a sudden we're flipping from one to the other in a heartbeat, and that, that cost of acquisition is there every single time with all the checks and all the regulatory things you need to do to get that person on board. Depending on what data has been collected by the comparison site. So if the comparison site then has all the information that's required to share the information about the individual who's looking for insurance, then some of those pieces have already been taken out. And there are other ways, of course, of collecting data. So, you know, we'll be looking at insurers have been using telematics data for a while, but as you can collect more and more of that via apps rather than necessarily installing things in cars, there are ways that you can get hold of data which will be useful for the pricing consideration of those piece rate insurers, um, which may be in a, in a place that's not their own database, which will be a big change in there. In their existing yes. model. Uh, speaking about the cars, um, a, a distinction must be made between the on-demand uh, business model and the traditional insurance. Because on-demand business model, um, the uh, the premium is a lot lower than the standardized products, and also the um, claim ratio is higher. Uh, and we know this by um, some of our kind of insurtech earlier insurtechs who have reported that they have loss ratio of over 350%, for example, of everything we underwrite. Um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, in the gadget, in home space here. Um, so early days, uh, without lack of data to be able to price risk correctly is very dangerous or it's important for us to basically monitor um, the loss ratio and also monitor the um, 
the how we offer insurance to whom we offered it to. So we need to be a little bit fussy with them. Um, so that's yeah. fascinating because one of the things that people always want to know, and I know the VCs in the room definitely want to know, is how is this business sustainable? Like, are you going to make any money? Are you going for profit? Are you going to bother with profit? Yeah. You might say it's the cost of acquisition of data, right? I mean, you're running at a high loss ratio because you're finding out how people are using the product and where, and then you can tweak the product later on. The question is whether or not you can raise enough from Rob to, to keep me, there's, there's, uh, there's two pieces to this. One is understanding is someone a good risk or not? And the challenge with a lot of the sharing economy is people have no history. A black cab driver has been driving a black cab for 20 years. Uh, someone who started Uber driving last week, um, you have no historic data. And insurers, traditional insurers love historic data. Tech-driven insurtechs love existing current data, driving behavior. Um, second piece is also the, uh, the adverse selection. How do you avoid adverse selection, bad behavior? Uh, and I think that's where it's important to get the automatic triggering of insurance that you have insurance that everyone has to have and you automatically turn it on automatically turn it off that starts to avoid that kind of oh i just forgot it this time and some of the bad behavior you see sorry yeah with gdpr doesn't make it easier for us because obviously with uh on-demand insurance product we need the system have to be fast it have to be automated and uh to automate that process you need data and with gdpr means that we're going to be um, the accessibility of certain data would be limited to us. And that's basically, and that's essentially what we would need in order to price better, to create better product and also price uh, according to individual risk. So GDPR could actually get in the way of some of these more innovative business Without question. I think, but I, think, I think it's a whole different conversation for a whole different show. <laughs> I, 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 We're doing gen- a GDPR special, Nigel. <laughs> oh, Did my... nobody tell you? Welcome to Regulation 103. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, genuinely th- I genuinely think, and I'll be really quick, I genuinely think G- GDPR, whilst really, really interesting and really, really important, most consumers will go, yes, it's fine to share. And over time, it will just get easier and easier and easier. And whilst we need these controls in place to make sure we have the option to do so, whether it's an entity or single, multiple entities, um, I'm not sure that the long-term impact here will be as bad as the short-term pain to get through it in the first place. That makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that we, we can move on to here as well is how many of these innovative new insurtechs are backed by the big guys. I mean, you, we've talked about them all. We talk about Munich Re all the time on this show, but that is important because to Munich Re, that loss of however, I don't know, five million that they write off or however, but I... I have no idea if the ratio has forgive me, but that loss that they write off whilst the insurtech's gathering the data and building its model and building its, its you know, risk appetite is, is hugely important here, actually, that collaboration between the big guys who are prepared to, to sit and wait it out whilst it, it, it happens and the little guys who've got the technology to, to build it. But then to go back, go back to Jane Carter's case and look at what we're doing or how you went about the secure capacity in the first place and who's supporting you. So maybe you should share that. Share that. I'm not sure if I can share at this stage, but you know what? Um, because I haven't actually asked for permission to mention names. And that's why you, you <laughs> that's totally fine. <laughs> yes, I think, you know, you, you've seen um, I've been constrained myself from saying names when I uh, give you example about some of the kind of loss ratio within the on-demand space. Um, so let's say that we're part of Loy. So that means that uh, we've got one of Loy's insurers to back us for the capacity. And is he backed by... Uh, so Ziga have a number of partners, one of which is Munich Re, uh, and then uh, Dinghy, our other investment in the space, uh, is Lloyd, so it's Beasley um, behind that. So yeah, I think there's a combination, right? There's big reinsurers as one pocket, and then Lloyd's of London is the other big pocket that we see. <laughs> and that's it <laughs> between them. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. I've, I've been working on a report on this, and, and as I dig into it, you know, you think it's lots of different insurers behind insurtechs, and then you dig through the brands and you go, oh no, that one goes back into Munich Re, oh no, that one goes back into Lloyd's. But what I like about it is I think each of the carriers that have a specific specialty – 
So one's focused on the sharing economy, one's focused on uh, automation and um, mobility, for example. Others are focused on uh, different lines of business. And I think they've all picked the, we're going to be great at this. So it's going to be enabled by tech for IoT or whatever it might be. And they've stuck at that. So if you look at them, actually, there's a theme for each of the, each of the, the big guys in the space. The other angle we got, before we got to this, the other angle I was going to talk about was, what does it mean for the employees of the big carriers going forward? And if you look at folks like uh, We Go Look, which was uh, Robin Smith, um, but this is basically taking your existing workforce and enabling it through the gig, gig economy or sharing economy. In essence, and more importantly, this is the gig economy. But your loss adjusting team is now a group of people that don't work for you anymore. So you actually outsource it to a bunch of people that are, in Robin's case, lookers. Um, but I think it's a really great way of actually saying we don't need to have this cost base inside our organization anymore. We can leverage the gig economy to make traditional insurance more effective, more efficient and less costly. So you're the insurer operates a gig economy. Absolutely. Why, why would, in the same way that you would use a mobile workforce or a non-permanent workforce to do things that you need at a certain point in time. Uh, which then raises the question of how big a pool of talent there is, because... The reason for having contractual relationships for the long term is that you need to hook in scarce talent. And if you think that there's an endless pool and you can just dip in and out to the right people at the right place, then great. And if you can't, then you might, as an employer, want to keep those longer term. So for those that can't see it, I think Sarah and I just looked at each other, went, rolled the eyes, went, talent's back. Every single (laughs) episode, (laughs) it comes back to how do we lock in the right talent to do the right thing? And is that is are we therefore saying that the reason the sharing economy has come together is because we can't secure lock in and manage to keep the talent that we want on a long-term basis or there's a certain amount of talent out there that we want to share amongst other people or am i missing it or is it i mean it's it's different types of talent this is not necessarily about high skill or low skill but different types of talent you may have a different profile of usage so if we look at uber driving is is a very well dispersed talent yeah. and so you can have uh, you can have a dispersed pool but if you look at other things like upwork if that way you you might be hiring people of much higher skill levels and much scarcer skills you still might only need those once uh, once in a blue moon right so you don't really want to have people who are providing those skills on your books and so no fixed cost time. or low fixed cost have a core team and the ability to flex out as you would in the same way you have you know call centers that have disaster emergency overrides that say if we're gonna have a peak thing over christmas whatever it might be you go out to temporary work yeah. and then the question for insurers is are loss adjusters sufficiently broadly spread that we don't need to have them tied in by long-term contract or if uh, if they're not, do we need them sufficiently rarely? That so we the shared asset in time? this instance is actually the individual with the skills to be able to go and assess yeah. a situation to go, that's a yeah. uh, total loss or whatever else it might be. As we say, talent it comes back to talent every week. Whatever we're talking about, it comes back to talent. And then we you know talk about automation. Um, oh, well, like, let's move on. Then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, one of the things that we sort of briefly touched on, but be interesting to, to get your opinions on is, is telematics. So if we're talking about drivers and we're talking about cyclists and we're talking about moped riders then telematics has a big part to play there or does or does it do you think uh, telematics has been promising good things for at least 15 years in insurance i think it's and 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 delivering i think increasingly delivering some interesting interesting data particularly for younger drivers and reducing costs for younger drivers albeit that there have been problems with that as well um, i think one of the interesting things is when you get down to a lidar chipset which is five dollars a pot rather than four thousand dollars and, and what would look, that be for those of our listeners so who... lidar is um is the laser version of radar which is forms the core of most autonomous driving technology so it's a way of seeing what obstacles are coming, what things are moving, and doing that in high resolution. If you can work out a way of getting that into the hands of 
all individuals rather than just installed in autonomous cars, then it may well provide an interesting stepping stone, both in terms of sort of driver advice while driving and also additional information which can be fed into driver scores uh, and insurance costs. And that, does that go back to this idea of actually if you're an Uber driver or a delivery rider or whatever, and um, what Rob was talking about, you know, in enforced insurance you end up saying okay you can be a delivery rider or an uber driver but you have to have this box in your car and what that box does is either you know track your driving or mm. you know feed no, the good thing is it doesn't, or... doesn't need to be a box anymore right well, it's a sorry, phone an right app, an app you get phone. all of your work through your phone and yeah. so the phone is definitely on the on the scooter yeah. in the car uh, and so you get really accurate telematics data now through the phone yeah. which has been the real barrier before right the requirement before was you had to bolt a huge <laughs> black box into a car at a uh, cost of hundreds of dollars um, so yeah, this is, makes it democratizes telematics. I think still 80% of the benefit is the fact that people know they're being tracked. Yeah. Uh, and maybe it's 20% is yeah. what you yeah. learn from the actual Oliver telematics. Said that last week, but, uh, right? He said yeah. he was sitting here saying, just because of the boxes in the car, I didn't know what it was saying to me, but I was consciously driving better as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah. Get, getting back to insurance and the sharing economy specifically, though, is there something here that says actually for the sharing economy to work, do we feel as a group, though, that the that the insurance industry was a barrier or an enabler? Or has it flipped recently? Well, it depends. But I mean, also, there's something we haven't talked about, which would be good to put talk in here, is, is Airbnb, which is a very different sort of model. So we've talked quite a lot about, you know, individual sort of freelancers, and we talk quite a lot about, you know, people who are driving and moving. What about how home insurance? Because that's something we haven't really touched on here. And as, a, as an, you know, if you're going into the Airbnb industry, you're going to want insurance of some sort, I'm fairly sure. Mm. And that does feel like, yeah, somewhere where traditional home insurers have said, hang on, we don't want this. This is definitely sort of falls out outside of our where we have lost history. So no way. And, so, and people are offering yeah. bespoke Airbnb policies now. To, yeah, to fill now, the they gap. Are. So now they are. Now they are. But the, Airbnb was founded eight years absolutely, ago. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, I, yeah. you know, from our experience of founding a peer-to-peer car rental network, it was very difficult to get the first insurer on board back in 2012. And now we've, you know, it's we we're working with Admiral, have been working with them for several years. They've been very highly engaged in the in, in the space in general, but particularly around motor insurance. And so I th- and there are plenty of other mm. peer-to-peer car rental networks around. So, uh, you know, it's not such a big issue as it once was, but it was yeah. so very it was, difficult it, to get people around, their, their heads around the idea of other people driving someone's personal car for I mean, it's kind of as a, a, To get back to Nada's point, I mean, I guess the insurance was a barrier, but people did it anyway. So the insurers have had to catch up. No, I think in car, certainly in peer-to-peer car rental, people were not doing it without insurance. So it it reduced... It's a relief. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas you look at a lot of the other kind of freelancers, uh, so the the people at Dinghy Sirs, right? It's kind of designers, developers. That was a a very underinsured market, right? And that's part of why we we invested, right? There's a bunch of people who should have insurance who don't currently have it. And I think one of the main reasons is because this market is not regulated. When it's not regulated, means that they don't have to have insurance. Um, But with the kind of, you know, focus around regulated, this market means that there's more need for people to have insurance. Yeah. It feels like we're getting in circles here, but if I look, you know, if I look at the Airbnb host protection insurance, which is what they offer for people that rent their properties out, um, you go into the, the fine print, it talks about HPI, host protection insurance, provides coverage through a policy issued by certain underwriters at 
Lloyds of London and Zurich Insurance PLC, two of the world's most reputable insurance providers. So again, when, you, when we talk about what the opportunity is for the insurance companies, five years ago or 10 years ago when the sharing economy didn't exist, this wasn't a policy or a product that was being written. Now we're actually writing or having to write new products to enable the market to keep moving forward and these business models to keep evolving. So I, back to my earlier question, I think this is actually the insurance industry is constantly evolving in a positive way to enable business models like this to actually work. And I think that's yeah, what we'd love to get as investors. I think what our companies would like to have is that symbiotic relationship with the insurers where they can keep up uh, and they can keep up with the tech companies and then both, both sides focus on what they do really well. Do uh, I think that? what you see with Lemonade and SoftBank investing in Lemonade is a sense that they're not keeping up uh, and there's some big people with big wallets who are willing to, to have a go at really disrupting Although it. Although Lemonade is very heavily backed by... Munich Re. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> so they've all. I mean, it's a great story. But then you talk about the, the, yeah, the amount yeah. of money that's been invested. I think they, it was a hundred and twenty million recently. That's the um, buy-in, right? right. That's but, the, yeah. but the next one, the next day, their investment into Dai Dai Car is a Dai Dai Car in China. Yeah, was like four yeah. billion or DD Car. Yeah. So I mean, you've got to put it into context. So this is a massive oh, yeah, opportunity. No, exactly. The next day, they go into yeah. I mean, I think that the the point, um, the fundamental point when we talk about any kind of insurance and how insurance is changing uh, is, you know, this everybody wants things that suit them better, personalised, bespoke, um, you know, and actually when you look at what's really interesting to me when you look at on-demand insurance is it's not necessarily cheaper. So um, I I use cover to borrow a friend's car occasionally, but it, the policy I'm paying for for the 48 hours, it's no, if I paid that every day of the year, it would be... <laughs> The most ridiculous, <laughs> but 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 doesn't matter because I want it then. I want it there and then to drive that car for exactly forty eight hours. So, so maybe this is the one thing or the start of things to come where we start to finally move away from price being the only thing we buy insurance upon yeah. because it's value about here and now i need this i'm prepared to pay a premium for the convenience and ease of getting what i actually need well, and talking about you know those peer-to-peer uh, car sharing networks you know you see them all around london and you know again it's more expensive if i was to pay that cost every day to drive that car it'd be ridiculous it'd be cheaper to buy a car but i don't want to buy a car that's the point i want to decide this weekend we are going to drive to brighton and i'm going to you know get my app out unlock the car wander over to it and drive off and i don't mind that it's more expensive my argument to that though is do I borrow a friend's car and buy the insurance myself which for me seems like a bit of a faff or do I actually just go and rent a car and do the thing well in London there aren't that many friends who've got cars that you can borrow so <laughs> there are tens of thousands of people who are prepared to rent out their car to their neighbours so we find that there are you know it's, did it, we tell you it, about it, easy car <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about it. Please do. Was that give a plug? Us, give us a um, so yes we have thousands of cars where people can go and pick them up and it will be cheaper than Picking up a similar car from, uh, you know, from a, a dedicated car sharing network mm-hmm. because you're just getting someone else's car. You're helping them share the cost of ownership and the typical rental price. No, you don't know them. You so just, you just come, just the, you come along and you, well, you might know them. You might have rented their car before. Okay. You know, we find the main reason that people take the car that they do is convenience, which is both it's near. So I don't have to go and pick it up from a depot and um, I can drop it off out of hours. So it's mostly we satisfy weekend. How do you deal with things like scratches and people scuffing it and then smoking in the car? We have all of those things I've dealt with very recently. Again, because it, it's not that rare. We don't have that many incidents. But um, over time, we've refined the condition reporting process and made it clearer and clearer to people what you're going to pay on. So, you know, if you as an owner make a claim, but you haven't got people to fill in a condition report before and afterwards 
there's going to be some excess. So everyone's encouraged to make sure they've got a good good state of uh, state of play before and afterwards. And talking about uh, and it makes know, it easier to deal with those. It being what you things. actually want. If you love your car like a baby and you keep it covered up and you buff it with lambskin, you're not going to join the network, are you? Uh, you're not, exactly. If you've got a kind of a, a six-year-old Ford Ka that you only use, you know, twice a month, then you might as well, you might as well. make some money from it. Yeah, and you know, it took off much more quickly in Paris, and, one, and there, obviously we spent <laughs> a lot of time sense. <laughs> exactly racking our brains. Is it something to do with the Parisians about their economy, about the way they think about cars? Or is it just the fact that if you have a car in Paris and it hasn't been scratched in three days, you think you've done something wrong? <laughs> you haven't driven it. Is there a maximum age of car you cover on insurance-wise? Uh, yes, we've changed it recently. I think it's about 15. Okay. So right, you can sign uh, up when yeah, it's yeah, up yeah. to 12 years old and then we'll keep it on for a few years yeah, if you yeah. want to. So your battered old Volvo still counts, Rob? Uh, I have a 2007 Mazda 6, which I still can't insure on cover. And uh, <laughs> I, wait, I want someone to come along and let me do it on a permanent you basis. probably do it on uh, yeah. If you set your price low enough, <laughs> yeah. your friends can just take, take this it. offline, gentlemen. <laughs> I think also the Shanghai economy is probably the closer to human nature than anything else because over centuries humans were able to survive because we were able to share um, things that we have and also things that we know. So that's why, you know, we work as a community. Um, so I think it's only recently that the ownership become uh, more of a norm and only over the last decade or so. Uh, similarly for um, the kind of uh, office job, daily job going to the office is very I wouldn't say inhumane, but it's not something that we would like. And majority of people like some flexibility to work from home, work different hours. Um, so I think I predict that there will be more and more people uh, voluntarily doing freelancers job if they have the platform to be able to do that. So we enable it again. Yeah. I, I yeah. back to it's all this, you know, the China economy would enable that. I, I go back to where we where we started at the very first of the, as a session. And it comes back to this John Paul Getty quote. I, I, when I was looking at this, I actually started to think about we live in a land of non-affordability for lots of things. Not everyone can afford to drive or own a car, or own the asset to sit there and do nothing for 95 or 97% of the time. Um, in the same way, we can't afford to buy a property in central London. So this affordability for, for our generation and for the next generation is going to get worse and worse, which means it's given rise to the need for the sharing economy to buy, to, to buy or to, to rent things or to lease things. You can practically rent anything. So when I started going down deep, deep areas on the internet, you go, what can you actually rent using the sharing economy? I'm not sure I want to know. Stop here. You can actually rent frocks. I'm allowed to say frocks, dresses, yes. handbags. Well, that's oh, yeah, it's a great idea, right? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's as we, you know, we are, we are getting towards the end of this conversation, but it sounds like generally we're agreed upon the fact that society is changing, what people want is changing, and, you know, insurance has to keep up or, or fall by the wayside because somebody will come in and find a way to do it. What's fascinating to me is that the need for insurance hasn't gone away. You still want to protect yourself. So it might you might be doing things differently. You might be doing things that better suit your lifestyle, the economy, you know the the environment, but actually the need for protection hasn't mm. gone anywhere. I, I don't see it going anywhere. Actually. It's even increased, right? I think yeah. people have less of a safety net, right? Less family ties, less assets, um, asset light, and so the insurance becomes even more important. On that note, that wraps up the roundtable for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Um, where can our listeners find out a bit more about you? So, Jantana, well, we've got a website. Um, you can visit us at www com, or if you want to send us an email you can send us an email uh, at info at com. brilliant thank you Rob 
Uh, you can find me at the Balderton site, uh, www.balderton.com, uh, or on Twitter at Rob Moff. And Richard? Uh, you can find out more and get in touch through easycarclub.com. Nigel? At Twitter, Nigel Walsh. And you can find me at Sarah Koshansky on Twitter. So next up, David spoke to co-founders Mike Rudoy and Luke Collar from New York-based startup Jetty. Let's hear from them now. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Mike and Luke, who are the co-founders of Jetty. Can you tell us a little bit more about Jetty? What do you guys do and what problems do you solve? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, this is Luke speaking. Thanks so much for having us. We're very excited to to be on today. Jetty is an insure tech startup, and our focus is on removing obstacles and risks for what we call both sides of the rental equation. So both renters as well as their landlords, and by extension, other folks in the real estate ecosystem like property management. Uh, and those, those obstacles and risks are really about removing the requirements that folks face when they sign a new lease, which as we see in the United States, more and more are really three things that tenants are asked to do when they sign up to, to live in an apartment or in a rental home. And those are posting a security deposit, which as you can imagine, can be very expensive for some folks showing proof that they've obtained renter's insurance or renter's insurance policy, and if they haven't actually done so yet, the requirement to obtain one. And then in many cases, if they don't meet the salary requirements that the landlord set out for them, actually finding a, a guarantor or what's called a lease cosigner to actually help guarantee the rent uh, for the landlord's security requirements. Um, and so our product suite actually seeks to help customers meet all of those requirements through one easy-to-use digitally native, super simple and straightforward technology interface, uh, resulting in more speed, more savings and greater security for everyone involved. That sounds great. It's, um, you know, this is a um, thing that should be happy for people, shouldn't it? In terms of, uh, you know, moving properties and moving places. But um, quite often, like you say, those uh, edge cases around uh, the uh, the process make it quite painful. So I can definitely see the, the benefit. Um, how did you guys come about starting Jetty? What was the sort of origin story of it? Was this a uh, frustration you guys had or is it more of a, an observation? Yeah, it actually was. It was, it, it, it's, came to us really as consumers. So or the problem came to us in, in our own lives as consumers. So Mike and I were sitting over lunch one day, sort of commiserating just randomly, actually, not necessarily with a mind to starting a business in the industry uh, about our own experiences as renters. And so uh, I had actually recently moved back to the United States after living abroad and was asked to buy a renter's insurance policy. It was a very painful experience, as well as meeting some of those other requirements that we discussed uh, and Mike and I were actually already working together at that time, helping entrepreneurs pitch venture capitalists uh, on technologies to disrupt legacy industries, and as well as helping entrepreneurs tell those stories as well. So we were doing this in kind of a consulting business capacity and already thinking about those types of problems. And so once we stopped and reflected upon our heated uh, complaint session over lunch, we thought to ourselves, hmm, this could actually be a very interesting area for us to play ourselves. And so it sort of served as a light bulb moment for us to enter the industry. It's amazing how many of those origin stories do come from that. I love that because it's, you know, you're fixing a, a real problem you've had yourselves and like very interesting, the, the VC background as well. So you've gone from, I guess, um, helping other people with their startups to starting your own. Exactly. Very cool. So what I guess, um, you know, in this market, it feels like there's there's probably quite a few different uh, organizations who are, I guess, attacking a little slice of this. But what makes Jetty's proposition unique in the market? 
Yeah, I, th- I think what makes us unique is really it's a couple of things. First of all, it's the way in which we're truly the only company in the market, whether in a legacy insurance company, so to speak, as well as an insurtech startup, to actually offer all three of these products together on one platform. So we're the only place where you can come and actually get all three of those requirements met as a renter and by extension as a landlord with the only potential partner that you can work with to offer a solution against all three of those problems, the renter's insurance, the security deposit requirement, and the lease guarantee or lease co-signer requirement. And so it's, it's in the product suite itself, first of all. Uh, it's secondly, it's, it's just, I think, in our DNA and chops as a product and technology company, which allows us to make that process truly consumer-centric and truly easy for folks using the best principles of modern design and technology. And then lastly, one thing I'd highlight, which is a little bit different from some other folks in the market, is our unique model. So we can talk more about this as a, if of interest, but... Our model as a managing general agent allows us to actually scale out very quickly and roll out our product suite across the country with great speed. So, and, and what's what's the sort of specific thing of that? Because um, from an MGA's perspective, obviously that sort of moves you into a slightly different territory, doesn't it? How, what can you explain a little bit about what that means? Yeah, sure. So the MGA model is a well-established model in the industry. I like to say it's an old model with a new use case that allows a company to create, market, and administer insurance offerings to consumers uh, and to commercial partners without actually having to be an insurance carrier or financial institution yourself. I like to think of it as sort of a turbo agency. So we do the, the sort of principal functions that are typically associated with agents, which are customer acquisition, but then we're actually responsible for the entire customer lifecycle past that moment as well. And so in practice, one thing that means is we don't have to amass a ton of balance sheet capital and hold balance sheet risk ourselves the way a financial institution might, which allows us to deploy the capital that we've raised as efficiently as possible and, and particularly in the shorter term against the things that a technology company is really good at, like product development and customer experience, and then allowing us to scale really quickly. So because of our partnerships uh, with Munich Re, who has a massive balance sheet, and State National, the primary insurance company which issues our policies... We're actually on A-rated paper, I might add. We're already in 43 states, which in nine months in market, I think, is a pretty quick rollout time and a testament to the, the strength of our partners and the efficiencies and benefits of our model. That's that's pretty huge. Like you say, it's um, sh- real sort of supercharge on the distribution side of things, isn't it? If you can enter into all of those different states at the same time, then that's that's really massive. It allows you to actually just focus on the customer's problem, doesn't it, really, rather than the, you know, the um, the, the balance sheet side of things. So how's your model set up? You know, what's the, the sort of trade-off here? What's the what's the underlying business model that you're looking to to scale up? Yeah, ultimately, we're looking to build a modern consumer-driven insurance brand. And so, you know, it's one sort of interesting analog to think about there, right? Some of the most disruptive companies of the 21st century so far have disrupted industries, albeit using a model which maybe the 20th century analog to those companies did not use. And so one that we like to talk about a lot is Airbnb, right? possibly the world's largest travel and hospitality company doesn't own a single hotel. And so... To us, it's the end, I would say, is still the same, which is how do you build a massive consumer insurance franchise in the 21st century? And one of the ways you do it is by using a model that's more capital efficient, given the realities that we face in 2018 versus the way that maybe someone would have done it in 1950. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely, completely understand that. It's a, like I say again, it's it's almost an exercise in the the changing of the the two elements, isn't it? The manufacturing side of things in terms of what the products actually are themselves, and then the distribution of those things in terms of where we're going. And we're, I think, we're seeing that in many industries, aren't we? As you say, Airbnb being a pretty good example of that in terms of where that's gone. But um, like, I, I guess, how far away does the does this get from you know traditional insurance models? Because I guess the you know the thing that we've seen insurance is predicated predominantly on risk and that risk coming from uh, aggregated data pools you know are you looking at i guess being able to insure people in a different way given the level of information that you're actually getting from them or what's the i guess what's the underlying product configuration change here um so ultimately if you think about what munich re is doing in our relationship they're they're taking the balance sheet risk um but ultimately what we wanted to do from the get-go was own the entire customer experience and all the things that go along with that. So as Luke mentioned earlier, that involves claims administration, that involves the technology, that involves the underwriting. Um, so every every piece of the insurance puzzle, we are effectively um, overseeing. So what it doesn't mean is that uh, Munich Re is actually um, s- stepping in at any point and and really telling us where to go. And so th- that's one of the things that we like about our relationship specifically with Munich is that they've given us that type of leeway uh, to manage the business as if we were effectively a full stack carrier, just minus that balance sheet risk. Fantastic. Well, that that gives you the the real freedom to make significant changes, which is awesome. That's uh, a very amazing partnership. Um, I, I guess for for our listeners and and with this podcast going out um, sort of beyond the US as, as as well as within, then I guess the the US regulatory framework with the sort of state by state basis that that's actually implemented is is quite different. So, do you want to kind of talk us a little bit through that? Because I guess the to underline a little bit the the point you made earlier about. Um, how big a deal it is you've managed to get out of so many states so quickly. Um, that really is quite a um, quite an impressive feat, isn't it? Yeah, I appreciate your saying that. So the, the U.S. model is quite complicated and it is a little bit idiosyncratic, I think, especially given the global nature of your audience. As, as folks know or, or likely know, the sort of first defining characteristic of the regulatory model is that, as you mentioned, it's a state-by-state regime, so to speak. I think the the way to think about it is really there's sort of three components to being able to sell insurance products in the U.S. And, and each of these has to be executed at a state-by-state state, on a state-by-state state basis. The first of those is being licensed as a, an agent or a broker of distribution. So that's a, a sort of state-by-state state licensure regime around having the right to actually solicit or sell insurance products. Um, naturally, we've gone through that entire process and own our our insurance agency, Jetty Insurance Agency, has gone through the regulatory process of receiving all the requisite approvals in every state as an agency. The second piece is actually having your products approved by the regulator. So the regulator wants to ensure that your pricing, for example, is both fair but also adequate. Uh, and so the, there's, unlike in markets like the UK, where you can dynamically price, as you might, for example, in the airline industry, the, the, any pricing changes here have to be actuarially justified. So there's a process through which each product has to go through rigorous regulatory scrutiny to, to ensure that it meets the regulator standards in terms of how you're actually making rate. Uh, and then the third is actually having the entity that's issuing the policies, the insurance carrier entity, license in every state as well. And that's that third piece, actually, that's where sort of the beauty of our model comes in, in that 
given our partnership with State National, which is what we talked about, it's an A-rated insurance carrier in every state. They've actually already gone through that piece. And so that, that's sort of the, the highest hurdle to hit in some sense, because in essence, the regulator is looking at your balance sheet and making an assessment as to your solvency. Um, so in our model, we have to do things, number one and number two, but actually number three is already taken care of by dint of our partnership with State National. Yeah, no, completely. The, as we say, it's um, it really allows you to focus on that acquisition side of things, doesn't it? In terms of uh, you know establishing the brand and and really sort of uh, explaining to people the 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 benefit of this product. I, I guess that probably naturally leads on to how are you looking at doing that to a certain degree. I know uh, you guys have been going for a little while, but um, how how are you actually sort of differentiating yourselves in the market and going about that customer acquisition side? So um, the way that we think about customer acquisition is twofold. Um, so on the renter's insurance side, we are acquiring customers through jetty.com um, uh, through our quick quote product, which is you put in an address, um, you get a quote, and you can purchase it within two minutes. And so that's a very um, simple and straightforward experience that a lot of people are finding out primarily through word of mouth. On the other side, um, we actually have identified that property managers, in many cases, as Luke mentioned earlier, are mandating that people buy renter's insurance today. And so beyond that, um, our security deposit and our lease guarantee products help them effectively close units. So we're really treating real estate property managers and landlords as another huge distribution um, opportunity for ourselves. The way that it works there is when someone walks into a building, um, they're typically told to buy renter's insurance. Um, they're given the choice to take our security deposit replacement. And if they need to find a lease guarantor, we can be that person as well. And so to date, we have signed up uh, many of the largest um, real estate uh, management companies and owners in the country. We've announced um, one uh, in the form of Stytown, 11,000-unit Blackstone-owned property in New York. Um, but we'll definitely be continuing to talk about that more in our future, uh, especially as we continue ramping up in that area. Wow. Well, with a three-minute application process, that's pretty impressive. And if you're, um, you know, if you're getting word of mouth spread, then you know that virality around customers liking the products and talking to other customers—that's the best way, isn't it? You know, that's a a real scalable proposition for for uh, distribution. Um, so I guess that probably moves on to the the last thing: is how have you guys gone about funding this? Because I guess, you know, with, um, you know, how many states and, and actually sort of the, the scale that you guys are coming to, that's that's a no, you don't do this without any funding, right? How have you guys gone about raising the funds? I guess with your background, this is probably the uh, the easiest part of this in terms of uh, your uh, your previous experience from, from your side, right? Um, so we raised a seed round in uh, 2016 of $4 million r- led by Rivet Capital. Um, and on that round, we built the product, we built our relationship with our insurance partners, um, and we we basically put all the right people around the table in terms of uh, our team. Um, from there, in August of 2017, we raised an $11.5 million Series A led by Valor Ventures, um, an uh, early-stage fintech-focused fund here in New York. And the focus there is to expand the products, expand the product experience, expand from a, um, a geography perspective, um, and continue finding new opportunities to distribute the product, which is exactly where we are today. 
Fantastic. Well, it, it feels like um, it's uh, massively on the up. What's the what's the long term vision for for what you guys are trying to do with Jay? Yeah, ultimately, we want to focus on um, this customer. Today, we're we're selling three products um, to renters, and so we really like the idea that we're able to um, help someone achieve their goal of getting into an apartment uh, with three different products all at the same time. So, as we think about the future. Um, we're asking ourselves the question, what other products can we sell to that same consumer and how do we fit into their lifestyle? And so as we're defining the modern lifestyle today, it really has less to do with age or even geography and has more to do with the way in which they interact with modern services. So through their phone, really, sim- really simply, re- really price competitive and so as we think about other products that we can fit into their lifestyle, um, we, we surely want to do those things as well. Um, the other thing I'll just mention in terms of our, our vision for Jetty is beyond the sale of insurance, it's important for us to think about other ways to help customers um, for whatever they're doing. So in the case of our real estate products, um, we've already introduced something called Jetty Member Benefits, which is when you get into an apartment and you need to set it up, you're looking for a bed, you're looking for sheets, you're looking for a couch, you're looking for to fill your fridge. And so we put together a number of like-minded brands to help uh, do that more cheaply through a number of discounts that we've been able to score on their behalf. And so as we think about scaling the company and into the future, we're constantly thinking about how can we do more than just sell insurance? How do we fit into their lifestyles? Fantastic. Well, it's, uh, you know, really, really good to hear about um, the success that you guys are having. There's, you know, so many insurtech um, startups that you talk to that have uh, got an interesting niche, but haven't really scaled it properly. Uh, and it kind of feels like you guys have uh, have done it all right, which is great. There's a few questions we uh, like to end on when we're sort of talking to CEOs or, or founders. Um, one of those is how do you go about motivating your team? Because this is always something that um, we know our listeners love to hear. Yeah, of course. It's a great question. We have a a set of company values that we try to live by every day. And I think chief among them and perhaps most important among them is our value of transparency. So we, we think that ultimately what makes companies successful is their ability to find ways, especially as they scale, to ensure that there's an immense amount of communication. And so ultimately, that's the key to any organization's success is just how well that organization is able to effectively promote communication within itself. Um, and so uh, we are you know, very deliberate in our efforts to keep our team up to date about our thoughts, our, our experiments that we're running, things that are going well, places where we failed, how we're fixing them, what we've learned. Uh, we reset with a team on a recurring basis around our goals and our plans, use metrics to drive them and hold ourselves accountable to them. Uh, and ultimately, it's all about providing data and information to the team to allow them to make minute-by-minute decisions around products and what's driving purchasing, what's working, what's not, which allows us to continue to innovate in the market. Great. No, I can completely relate to that. Um, the other question we always um, like to ask, and this is always quite an interesting one, depending on where the advice has come from, but what's the best piece of careers advice that you both have been given? So, um, Mike, do you want to go with that one first? Sure. I'll give one, uh, hopefully it's not a trite example, but uh, it is definitely true, which is just surround yourself with the best people. Ultimately, organizations are made up of people. Um, and as much technology and, and design and things that you can bring to the table, um, that's great. But over the long term, you have to surround yourself with the very best. Sounds good. Surround yourself with smart people has always been uh, my, uh, my, my sort of thesis as well. It's, uh, it's done me pretty well. Luke, what about you? 
go with your gut in terms of where the action is and what excites you and what motivates you and gets you up in the, uh, and out of bed every day. If you're in a job that you don't like and it's that feeling of, oh gosh, another day that I have to go to work and dreading Monday morning on Sunday evening, then it's time for a change and, and follow what actually energizes you because life's short. And it's, it's too short to wake up feeling anything other than excited and energized every day to get out of bed and get to the office. Sounds good. Everybody should be excited on a Monday morning. But um, fantastic. Well, really, really good to hear from you guys. And um, fantastic to hear the good news uh, story at uh, Jetty and everything that you're doing. So uh, congratulations. And Mike and Luke, thank you very much for your time. And now for the news. So the first story this week, Nigel, is from the BBC. And it's a story about how uh, autonomous vehicles from both Tesla and General Motors have been involved in road collisions. So the two vehicles were reportedly engaged in self-drive modes. A Tesla Model S and a General Motors Chevy Bolt um, were both involved in separate road accidents in California. The Tesla apparently ploughed into the rear of a fire engine um, and the GM incident resulted in a collision with a motorbike in San Francisco. So, I mean, this is following on from what we were talking about last, uh, last time. I mean, this is presumably insurer's biggest nightmare here. I don't know what to feel about this. Obviously, accidents are bad, period. But the, the, the amount of hype that a self-driving or semi-autonomous vehicle gets compared to the other thousands of accidents that happen every single day, A, is frustrating, but we understand why. Um, but B, I'm confused as to why this happened in December. It's only coming out a month or two months later. Now, Tesla previously were really, really good at the accident in which was a, a fatality, unfortunately. Uh, were very good at sharing all the data from the car at the time once permission was given to say this is what happened and these are the sequence of events. The one thing about cars with so much tech in them these days is they have this data. So I think what we'll see over the coming weeks and months is the data from behind this that says, actually, this is what actually happened in the event. Yeah, I mean, the, the Tesla have said that they since introduced an update that brings cars to a halt if the, hand, uh, if the driver's hands are not on the wheel. Um, I mean, the, the Tesla incident, which is the one went it back in, went into the back of the fire engine, it sounds like it was just going too fast to stop. So the Tesla, the auto drive may have have you know slammed on the brakes but it didn't happen quick enough um the the chevy bolt accident is, is slightly different and it's um a debate that sort of a, a he said Wobbled he said fell. yeah a he said he said as to whether the car drove into the bike's lane or whether the bike cut the car up and the interesting question there is of course that no matter how good these cars are if a bike is doing something silly and we've all seen bikes do silly things hush hush the- I, I said some bikes um how how do you how does an autonomous car respond to that and whose fault is that accident well, well I, I i if you there's if you get if anyone's got 15 minutes spare there is a, a ted talk on um how a google car sees the road and it's a fascinating visual of the data that it gets that is far beyond the human purview to understand how quickly it processes the stuff so actually if it was a human then it may have been far far worse and we're only looking at the negative side not the positive side so we could argue actually if this was you know nigel in control of the damn thing it might have been a very very different outcome and i guess the point is as well as you say that these cars will be equipped with so many sensors that they'll be able to tell instantly whether that cyclist cut the car up or whether the car cut the cyclist too, too right and, and, and as always we talk a lot about things like humans in the loop right now, even when it's AI or machine learning, all those things. We still have to have humans in it. It clearly states autopilot is intended for use with a fully attentive driver. So, I mean, I think, well, you know, that story is going to rumble on and we're going to hear obviously more and more about this as we go along. Um, but as that data happens, you know, the, the insurance will develop alongside it. 
Um, so the second story we have this week is from Business Wire, um, and this is Slice, which uh, is an on-demand digital insurer, um, has launched its product as a service. So uh, two years ago, Slice launched um, on-demand insurance for the on-demand economy. On the 25th of January, they launched their product as a service. So for insurers to come along and use their platform to develop their own products. Uh, what do we think of this? Uh, so I think this is really exciting, actually. And Tim and the team behind uh, the, behind Slice is actually really exciting right now. Um, the overall concept, they've all come to market with a new product, a new proposition that gets there quickly, number one. Number two for lots of these guys, we saw Lemonade do it a couple of months back by opening up their APIs so you could consume their capability. Um, this, for me, is a whole new model that says we've built this cool thing. We're no longer burdened by legacy and we can get you to market more quickly than you can do yourself. So why would you go and launch something internally when you can do it much quicker externally? Yeah, and it's something we've seen when I mean, we've even seen the big tech providers Providers to the insurance industry, so IBM, Guidewire, launching similar platforms. Um, and on the side of you know the startups, we've seen a very similar model evolve in the robo advising space, where you know as we said earlier, the startups um, decide that going after you know as many customers as they need to be a sustainable business is just too hard or too expensive or whatever else. It's speed to market, yeah. speed to market, speed to market. Nothing more matters in my mind about being able to test a product that's relevant for today's market at the lowest possible price point, rather than spending millions of pounds or hundreds of thousands of pounds getting to a point where you go, oh, it didn't work. If you do that quickly and efficiently in a platform like this or others, and there's plenty of them out there that are doing this now, I actually think this is the new race for the, for the insurers. So, it's like, so the insurtechs becoming, you know, white labeling their products um, and, you know, going out there and selling their products to insurers. And look, at this, as I said, there's plenty of others out there that are doing it right now that, um, again, a, a quick search, you'll find a whole host of people playing in this space. Cool. Um, so the third story is um, about a new travel insurance that promises zero medical questionnaires. Um, and this is specifically related to those who have serious health conditions. So um, historically, it's been very difficult for people who have uh, serious health conditions to get travel insurance. Um, this uh, startup, which we mentioned before on the show, bought by many, um, has just launched a new policy specifically for people who uh, who, who couldn't get insured or who it was prohibitively expensive for. Um, this is really interesting to me. This is kind of what Bought by Many set out to do, which was to provide insurance products for people who couldn't just couldn't get insurance products elsewhere. Um, and I think it's, you know, a really interesting uh, first uh, product for them that it's, um, it's, it's this group who obviously want to travel, can travel. Um, and, you know, the one requirement that they have is that their doctor says they're fit to travel. Yeah, I, I think this is Again, the insurtech community rallying around better data to understand and use it accordingly rather than being put into a broad bucket or pool of people that then says, oh, you've got diabetes, oh, you've got cancer, therefore you can't travel. That's not always the case. Uh, and again, this for me is a great story to show actually how we're leveraging data. And again, back to humans using the insights to go, actually, this is, this is, there's no reason why you shouldn't travel. These are the things that you might need to do extra, but actually there's no questionnaire. Um, quotes in seconds, it's conditioning ag agnostic and just go. It's actually um, doing the, you know, what would have seemed impossible 10 years ago, combining common sense with insurance. God forbid. <laughs> Um, and so our final story this week is a is a whopper. So Amazon, Berkshire, JP Morgan have all partnered to form a new company that says it's going to cut US healthcare costs. Uh, Berkshire is Berkshire Hathaway, by the way. Um, it's going to be huge when we work out what they're actually doing. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the release was, was, I guess, light in, in, in terms of content and detail. The impact and the waves, I think, have been significant. CNBC reported a drop to the share price of many of the traditional health carriers in North America, not by one or two percent, but by five and seven percent. So I think it's quite significant. 
Um, Amazon, as many will know, my opinion on, on, on many of these guys, the, the gaffers, the ten cents, and the, the, the bats of the world, um, is they will always be a player in the market, just not necessarily the ones that carry capital and regulation. However, when they partner, which is, I think is absolutely the right model, either on supply chain or with someone who's got capital access and regulatory controls or regulatory access, um, you have an an unformidable uh, competitor. What's really interesting about this is they've launched something that's going to be not for profit. Yes. So I thought that was really, really interesting. I often wonder, and I've read this one a few times, I often wonder and think, is this the industry getting together to address different political issues at the moment with the uh, changes coming to Obamacare to make care more affordable for other people and bring the efficiency and capital access to many, many patients. It's going to be a really interesting one to watch. It's going to be really interesting to see what they come up with and you know, and what products are, are first to launch. I, I think the industry took a deep breath when they saw this, <laughs> w- without a shadow of a doubt. Absolutely. Okay, well, thank you very much, Nigel. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. So thank you to all our guests, Jantana, Richard, Rob, Mike and Luke at Jetty, and of course, my co-host, Nigel. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>